Well, good morning. We're a little thinner this morning. Not quite the day of Pentecost, but we'll talk about the day of Pentecost. Maybe that'll bring a few more people around. Uh, but we appreciate uh, the effort and the diligence of this group. You know, it's easy to say it. I'm sure Ken has had this experience too, where, you know, you can go and you can get to the last message of a conference and thank everybody and say, you know, this was a special conference. You're special people. You have to watch out now because these things get recorded, right? So all of people are like, wait a minute, didn't you tell the people in San Diego that they were special and in Kansas that they were special and back in Canada that they were special and Arizona? But, um, but I think, and let it be recorded, um, <laughs> that uh, having now done this conference four times, twice uh, over a decade ago, although as you may remember, we had a little stagger, um, that stagger was called Katie. Um, or Alyssa. Actually, yeah, Alyssa was the stagger. So we, Heather and I came together before we had children. And then, we, of course, you know, you set up the schedule that you speak twice. The second year, Alyssa made her entrance into the world. Um, and so we had to defer a year. We came back the following year. Um, and uh, then it was a year after that that we had Katie. So uh, we find ourselves very connected to Yosemite. And then now having been able to come back last year and this year, um, has been wonderful, and it's wonderful because it's a beautiful setting, because we've got to hear great ministry. I enjoyed uh, Steve Price last year and, and immensely enjoyed uh, Ken this year, and I'm not just saying it because he's listening to me. Um, but most importantly, we share the Lord in common, and we've built friendships and family ships here that we know will last eternity. And uh, I, too, am excited to know that so many sites were obtained yesterday in housekeeping and uh, the Lord knows the end from the beginning, beginning from the end. We don't know where we'll be next July. We may not be here. We might be at a different Yosemite conference. And uh, I don't think there'll be mosquitoes in heaven. Anyone uh, got an idea on that? Yeah, exactly. My daughters are quite happy about that. But um, I told them they're so cute. That's why the mosquitoes go after them. You know, poor Katie's gotten bitten all over. But um, But we really appreciate the invitation to be here. Um, hospitality takes a whole new level uh, when you do so out of a housekeeping unit or out of an RV um, or at the Majestic. Uh, but uh, we, we really appreciate so much um, your kindness, your love towards us. Um, it's, it, it is what the world doesn't understand. As I've frequently said and I travel, sometimes my colleagues will say, where are you going this time? And I'm going to Dubai or I'm going to all these places I travel for work or, or I'm going to Yosemite National Park or I'm going to, to, to Los Angeles. Oh, where, where are you staying in Los Angeles? I'm like, I'm staying at, at people's homes. Like, oh, where, who are they? I'm like, well, I, I don't know yet. But, but, they're, but they're my family. And then they get all confused, right? Um, and we have the family of God everywhere we go. So we, we appreciate uh, your, your invitation of us here. I uh, appreciate sharing the conference with Ken. I told him I'll be his, uh, his side man any day of the week. I will gladly uh, uh, work with him any day of the week. And, uh, thanks, bro. Uh, and please, uh, please pray for us. Um, we apologize in advance that literally as soon as Ken is done, we're going to uh, slip away. We've got a flight to catch out of Fresno uh, mid-afternoon, so we'll take our, our make our way out. Uh, and pray for us in Arizona. Um, as many of you know, our assembly is relatively small, but not that we focus in numbers. But very often, Alyssa and Katie are the whole Sunday school, uh, although we don't really have a Sunday school. Uh, but they're the, the two children there. <clears throat> but pray for us. Pray for our ministry there and in various places. 
Uh, I've tried to scale back some of uh, the number of conferences that we're doing, but we do have a couple more conferences this year, so we appreciate your prayers in that way. Acts chapter 2, please. Before we go to Joel, which we will conclude our series with, I'd like us to go to Acts chapter 2. You're quite likely very familiar with Acts 2. There are parts of Acts 2 that many of you can likely quote off the top of your uh, mind, which is great. Um, I know we commented the other day about Lamentations and how Lamentations is laid out in that very unique fashion with the Hebrew alphabet, that, of course, one of the hopes there was that it would, it would encourage memorization. We had a nice chat yesterday at lunch about Bible memorization. And again, much like I've hopefully been sharing with you regarding reading God's Word, that's not just an academic exercise, but something that will then be able to uh, have a work in your heart that would otherwise not happen. Brother Ken shared with us in his life how the Lord had taught him things, and he knew at a point in his life when he, he wasn't heeding to them, but then the Lord was able to take those selfsame scriptures and convict his soul and his spirit to carry on the work of God. So I'd also encourage you to memorize lots of ways of doing it. I was sharing with some of the young people yesterday that I used to write Bible verses on big Bristol board and pin them to my ceiling so that I would read before I went to sleep and when I woke up in the morning. That's what I last thing I would read before I went to bed. First thing I'd read in the morning and I'd have it up for a month or two and try and memorize a particular a set of verses or chapters. And, and, and it's amazing how much more your understanding of a passage can be deepened when you start to memorize. And if I can push it a little bit further, I'd encourage you to try and memorize a book of the Bible. I went to a Bible study once on Romans, and I was very proud of myself because I had read through Romans twice. So I was ready for this study, and I sat down next to a brother, and uh, we were chatting a little bit about it. I'd never met him before, and talking about, he was telling me how excited he was for the conference, and he wanted to be ready, and so he memorized the book of Romans. <clears throat> Again, awkward party of one. Um, I was thinking to myself, wow, and, and it wasn't out of a boastful, like, wow, I've memorized Romans. Look at me, I'm so spiritual. Of course not. Imagine how much more that conference meant to him and his understanding of the book than me. So I would encourage you to do that. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. We could spend the day talking about the beauty of that verse. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like a fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And they were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded, because that every man heard them speak in his own language. These weren't random tongues of unusual noises and languages that people didn't understand. God had a purpose in delaying the full entrance of the Spirit of God into his people and into the church so that it could be of order, not disorder. Like This is a nice reversal of Babel, isn't it? Where people got confused and multiple languages were the product of it. In fact, if you want to do a study one day, look at this event and that of the Tower of, of, of Babel or Babel, however you like to pronounce it. And you'll see, I think it's ironic that Babel is a word that people pronounce differently on the subject of languages. But nonetheless, um, uh, that, that you can see that there are a lot of similarities and reversals. And that's actually yet another uh, beautiful concept where we see a historical event in the Old Testament 
And we see a similarity to that event in the New Testament, but in a very different way, in a very different spin. Sometimes it's very obvious. Like the Lord said, we said the other day, when he explained, and as Moses lifted up the serpent of wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. But there are a lot of events. The disciples came to the Lord one time and said, Lord, can we call down fire of heaven like another event that occurred in the Old Testament? How gracious the Lord was not to let that happen. But I would encourage you to look at those paired, if you will, events between the Old and the New Testament. Verse 7, And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are these not all which speak Galileans? How hear we every man in, his own, in our own tongue wherein we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, dwellers of Mesopotamia and Judah and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and parts of Libya about Cyrene and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians. We do hear them speak in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. That's a lot of tongues listed there. Those aren't, those aren't all, oh, those are just minor dialect changes. Between, no. These are frankly different languages. And they're all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, what meaneth this? Others mocking said, these men are full of wine. You know, that, that, that tends to happen when someone can't believe the truth of something that is so evident from the word of God and from the works of God, they make fun of it. It's like an easy way out, right? Just make light of it. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judah, and all you that dwell in Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken unto my words. For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. It's a little bit early. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens, I will pour out in those days of my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood before the great and notable day of the Lord come. We'll come back to that expression in a minute. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Marvelous. God is in the saving business. All right. Come back to the book of Joel as our final book that we will share together and study with uh, together this week. We've appreciated um, a lot of things this week. I hope I've literally just given you the appetizer so that you can later get the main dish of each of these books that we've looked at. As we've looked together at books like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, each of which have common themes, but also unique themes and unique messages. And now we'll come to the book of Joel. And Joel is also a unique individual. Remember, we've noted all the way along the importance of the name of the author. And Joel has an interesting name, which literally means Jehovah is God. It's not in some ways dissimilar uh, speaking of the names of the Lord, of Elijah. Jehovah is the God, as it were. El and Jah together. Jehovah is the God. And in many respects, of course, that summarized Elijah's life, didn't it? In fact, you remember when he challenged the prophets of Baal there at Mount Carmel? And they, and they did all their weirdnesses, you know, and they were calling on the name of the Baal. And, and, and that was a good time to make fun of things, by the way. Remember how he did that? He's like, you know, maybe your maybe your God's like on vacation or maybe he's in the toilet. I don't know. Maybe he needs a little bit more encouragement. He was purposely mocking to show the ludicrousy. It was ludicrous. 
to not trust in the Lord Jehovah. And we say it carefully to our colleagues and friends and family members. But what God is trying to show to us is it's ridiculous to believe in any other God than the God Jehovah, isn't it? So it's marvelous, interesting, that when they saw the sacrifice consumed and when, uh, after Elijah had had that great and wonderful prayer, their answer literally was Jehovah. He is the God. Jehovah. He is. They are literally saying the name of Elijah, not to praise Elijah, but to praise his God. In many respects, that's the summary of the whole of the Old Testament, isn't it? Jehovah is the God. You could take the summary of the whole of the New Testament of the book of Philippians. Jesus Christ is Lord. That same God, he is indeed Lord triumphant. The one who has paid the price for your sin and mine. And marvelous, in some respects, despite all the complexity of these passages we look at, there is a simplicity about the oneness, the trueness, the sovereignty, and the wonder of God. And so he is, as I've listed here, the first uh, of the writing prophets that foretell the doom of the future. There's some... There's some doom and gloom here. There's also lots of light, but there's a, a beautiful balance between the two like we've seen in most of these books. And so he speaks often, as we'll come to in a moment, of the day of the Lord. And we could uh, get de- into detail of prophecy now and understand the difference between the day of Christ, the day of the Lord. But we have to also understand that very often in prophecy, just like we said the other day about the Antichrists, remember there are three things about the Antichrists. There's the spirit of Antichrist. There are the Antichrists plural, and then a single antichrist. And that's very often how we see prophetic things happen. There's the spirit of a thing. There's the, 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 the ambiance, the background, the way the world is moving right now. We have seen this in the past, but perhaps we see it in a more prolific way. We saw even uh, in, in various, sta- various waves, if you will, throughout history, times when the earth was dark, if you will, when it came to the gospel. But it seems with each wave, it gets darker. And then there are those antichrists or there those pre-representations of the thing that is ultimately going to come. And then, of course, there's the ultimate judgment itself. So I'd suggest to you that the day of the Lord does indeed speak of an explicit time at the end of at least the tribulation period. If not, we could even consider it at the very final judgment as God's day of judgment. But it's also a principle that it is the fact that he is a God who will judge. And as we commented the other day, when we saw the words of the Lord that he read, when quoting the prophet Isaiah, that he stopped at a very strategic point. When he's talked about the, the year of our Lord, comma, and the day of vengeance of our God. That there is an important distinction between the year being a longer period of time, as we know, at least 360 days in the Jewish calendar in a year for us, 365 and a quarter in a year is a whole lot longer than a day. And that in itself is a lesson, isn't it? To help us appreciate. It's not like the Lord is gracious and patient for a day and then judges for the year. You know, that's not the way he works. His judgment is true, but it is swift. And it is delayed for as long as possible. In fact, I'd argue every time we see a judgment directly from the Lord in the scriptures, it is always preceded by a period of patience. It's marvelous how the Lord does that. He, pay, he pauses and waits. Um, and so, of course, the day is also symbolic. We read that the, a day with the Lord is, is a thousand years, right? Because remember, as we've said so many times this week, God is above time. He's not bound by time. And you and I, 
are, are bound by that. But let's read some of it together. Chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, O ye, uh, ye old men, and give ear, all ye inhabitants of the land. Hath this been in your days, or even in the days of your fathers? Tell ye your children of it, and let your children tell their children, and their children another generation. That which the palmer warm hath left, hath the locust eaten. That which hath the locust left, hath the canker worm eaten. And that which the canker worm hath uh, left, hath the killer caterpillar eaten. Awake, ye drunkards, and weep, and howl, all ye drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation is come up upon my land, strong and without number, whose teeth are like teeth of a lion, and he hath a cheek teeth of a great lion, and he hath laid my vine waste, and barked my fig tree, and hath made it clean bare, and cast it away, the branches thereof are made white. Lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of your youth. The meat offering and the drink offering is cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests, the Lord's ministers mourn. The field is wasted. The land mourneth, for the corn is wasted. The new wine is dried up, and the oil uh, languisheth. Be ye ashamed, O ye husbandmen. Howl, O ye vine dressers, for the wheat and for the barley, because the harvest of the field is perished. The vine is dried up. The fig tree languisheth. The pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, and the apple tree, even all the trees of the field are withered, because joy is withered away from the sons of men. Gird yourselves and lament, ye, ye priests. Howl, ye ministers of the altar. Come, lie all night in sackcloth, ye ministers of my God. For the meat offering and the drink offering is withheld from the house of your God. Come down to verse uh, 19. O Lord, to thee will I cry. For the fire hath devoured me, the pastures of the wilderness, and the flame hath burned all the trees of the field. The beasts of the field cry also unto thee. The rivers of waters are dried up, and the fire hath devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Verse 11 of chapter 2. And the Lord shall utter his uh, voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for he is strong that executeth his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? Therefore now, uh, also now, saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning. And rend your heart, and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God. See, you remember the, the principle, and the, uh, one of the uh, things that was done in the ancient world, not just amongst the Jewish nation, but others, when someone was, was, was devastated and sad, very often the morning of the death of a family member, they would tear their clothes, or if something horrible would happen, we see kings doing this, there's a good study for you, kings that rend their garments, but others as well would tear their clothes. I, and I think this expression is unique because that's an outer manifestation of weeping. It's like we go tragically to a funeral and we see people crying. Well, you assume that the tears are real, that they're from something underlying. But here, the Jewish nation, they've had devastation. What's described here as locusts coming through or fire coming through, speaking of the waves of their enemies that have come to devastate the land. We'll talk a bit about the timing in a moment. But God, remember, we saw this with Hosea. God can use other nations to discipline and to teach his children that it was one thing to be sad about the fact that your garden is gone, that your bear box is empty, right? That things have been taken from you. But he wants them to rend their hearts. Because that was the point. The point was not to physically hurt them, per se, but to touch them spiritually. And are we on the outside rending our heart, rending our clothes? Are we on the outside doing the right things and other people see us 
engaging in spiritual activity that's appropriate. But what's going on in your heart? Only you can know sitting here today. Verse 13, And rend your heart and not your garment. Turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. Who knoweth if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him, even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord your God. God's willing to, to save. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sanctify a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children. And let those that, uh, and those that suck the breasts. Let the bridegroom go forth, uh, uh, forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch of the altar and let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thine heritage to reproach that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, Who is their God? Then the Lord will be jealous for his land and pity his people. Down to verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward, I will pour out my spirit. You remember those verses? We read them together in Acts. On all, upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and the, upon the handmaidens in those days will I pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance as the Lord has said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. We'll come back to that remnant uh, in a moment. Let's read finally a few verses from the final chapter. There's only three chapters in Joel. Chapter 3, verse 9. Proclaim ye this among the Gentiles. Prepare war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and pruning hooks into spears. Remember, this is a reverse, isn't it, of what we read in Isaiah? Remember, we commented that those are the verses that were those are verses that are chiseled into the stone at the United Nations headquarters in New York City. They'll beat their swords into plowshares and learn war no more. Let the weak say, "I am strong." Assemble yourselves and come, all ye heathen, and gather yourselves together round about thither. Cause the mighty ones to come down, O Lord. Thy mighty ones to come down, O Lord. Let the heathen be wakened and come up from the valley of Jehoshaphat. What valley is that? That's sometimes called the Jezreel Valley or the Fat Valley, the Valley of Armageddon, if you will. For there will I sit to judge all the heathen round about. Put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, get you down, for the press is full. The fats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon shall be darkened. The stars shall be with shall withdraw their shining. The Lord also shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth shall shake. But the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So shall you know that I am the Lord, your God dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then shall Jerusalem be holy and shall there be no more strangers pass through her anymore. And it shall come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drop down the new wine and the hills shall flow with milk and all rivers of Judah shall flow with waters and a fountain shall come forth out of the house of the Lord and shall water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall be a desolation and Edom shall be desolate wilderness for the violence against the children of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah 
shall dwell forever. And Jerusalem from generation to generation, for I will cleanse their blood that I have not cleansed, for the Lord dwells in Zion. At least a positive note to end on, considering all the doom and gloom that we have seen thus far. So Joel here, the the executive summary is that Joel is, of course, prophesying multiple things. But he's giving us a flavor of what would come at the day of Pentecost, indeed, when the Lord would pour out his spirit and wonderful things would happen. But he ultimately spoke of a final judgment that would deal with the nations that have rejected the Lord's people. And that, of course, would land in that valley that's sometimes called here the Valley of Decision, the Jezreel Valley, the Fat Valley, the Valley of Jehoshaphat. That's indeed where we see the day of vengeance of our God, that great battle of uh, the Valley of Armageddon at the end of the tribulation period. Because, you know, time-wise, we're now in that period, as we've said, between the 69th and 70th week of Daniel, where the Lord is patient, waiting. The church is growing, it's prospering in many respects, but at some point, the Lord is going to come to the clouds, not come, if you will, fully to the planet, and evacuate his believers. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. And the world will see in that uh, time of Jacob's trouble, as it's described, in tribulation, in a period of seven years, of which the second half will be worse, significantly worse than the first half, where the influence of the Spirit of God and, frankly, the people of God, like we're described as the salt of the earth in some respects. We have that preserving flavor. You take that away from the planet. This planet will see sin like it's not seen sin before. I don't have time to describe all the events of of the uh, tribulation. I did mention the other day that there are three key people that will play a prominent role in those days including the, the Antichrist, as they're often called, the false prophet, he's often called, and the king of the north, as they're often called, who will um, have a tremendous calling towards them. There'll be a tremendous sense of anti-godness on the planet, where Daniel described that abomination that maketh desolate, that ultimately they won't need to feel a need for God because they found God in themselves. That's what's happening now, isn't it? Isn't that the spirit of Antichrist? Isn't that the most pervasive religion in North America, at least if not the planet? That, that me, I'm God. I'm the most important thing. I can make God of my emotions. You know, I studied in high school, the Romans, we used to think it was kind of funny that they had, you know, gods for each of our emotions or feelings or, or, or things. You know, we had, we had a goddess of love and a god of war and a god of anger. And, and, and when something would happen, they would say, oh, oh, it's not my fault. The God of war came upon me and made me do it. And we think, how childish is that? Well, isn't that what happens now? People say, it's not my fault. I was genetically born with a temper. Well, I've just blamed my genes. We've just changed it from calling it some God to genes. Where people really genuinely, at the end of the day, feel themselves to be God. We don't need God if we can do it ourselves. And that, of course, is the very spirit of Satan, as we saw from the very start In Isaiah 14, I will ascend into heaven. I will be like the Most High. He wanted to usurp God of his genuine authority. There are certain things that are exclusively God's. Again, I think I gave you that homework last year. Look up things that God says are purposely his. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. So before you go off and take vengeance on someone, you recognize that that belongs to the Lord. The apple in the garden or the fruit in the Garden of Eden was not a setup 
It was to demonstrate a principle that not everything belonged to us. There are things that were God's. We take what's rightfully God's, we naturally get ourselves into trouble. And so we see the cascade of this spirit, if you will, of Antichrist through to the day today. And so that time will come at the end of the tribulation period where there will be a judgment of multiple forms. There will be the judgment of the sheep and the goats, depending on how people have treated Israel. Israel will be in a very compromised situation, but there will be a remnant who will look on him who they've pierced, as the Scripture has described us, captured in a tiny little area in Israel, and the Lord will rescue them. And even as, as Romans tells us, so all Israel shall be saved, the true Israel. And it's sad in many respects now that, at least in North America, it's a little different, of course, in, in, in Israel, but so many of our Jewish friends are Jews really almost by culture more than religion. Which, of course, is true of much of Christendom. People think of their Christianity, if you will, who aren't genuine believers but profess some kind of Christianity. It's a cultural phenomenon. We go to church for Easter. We go to church for weddings and funerals. It's a cultural phenomenon. Not a genuine religious phenomenon. And there in the Valley of Armageddon will be a horrible judgment. And so Joel was speaking of not only the time of Pentecost, but indeed later thereafter, and who knows when that will be, when that judgment will come. But the Lord Messiah will establish his kingdom. And we saw those beautiful things read at the end, that Jerusalem will be established again. And this planet will see what it is to have great government. Again, I don't want to make political comments this week, but what will it be to have the King of Kings and Lord of Lords ruling over the planet? That's where we will have the privilege to reign with him because we have suffered indeed with him. So that's the overview of how he looks at it. When we don't really know a lot about Joel himself, we don't know the exact time that we wrote. It seems to fit somewhere around the time frame of 800 B.C., um, he's placed in the order of these minor prophets right after Hosea is the, the second of the 12 of these, as we mentioned, minor, or not that they're minor, but that the writings were shorter prophets. And the book really has three bits to it that we tried to see quickly in these three chapters. First, it describes that devastation that the nation experienced because of its rebellion. And this affected the people, it affected the land, it affected their animals. I mean, this was a wholehearted uh, uh, devastation because of their sin and rejection of the Lord. Some of it seemed to, if you will, be caused by locusts, some caused by fire, uh, some caused by their enemies. Some of that could be analogies describing enemies like locusts. And we see these sort of uh, waves, uh, as I've listed here, this, this number four appears again. Well, we've seen the number four a lot this week, haven't we? Uh, and we've tried to have you understand the four major nations that were described, the four symbols um, of the uh, uh, of the lion, of the ox, of the man, of the eagle, the four colors. This is again another pervasive um, uh, way uh, description here in, in Joel that could represent those four major nations that, if you will, had that prolific impact on the nation of Israel: Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. The middle of the book is that call to repentance that we read, which is wonderful because it's not just saying, "Okay, you know what? You failed. God's judged you." And we're done, right? Go home. No, God did that to bring them to repentance. Judgment of sin 
in the final day is not to yield repentance. It'll be too late. But when the Lord deals with you and I in our lives now, yes, the penalty of our sin has been paid for. But he wrestles with us. He deals with us. Why? So he can bring us to the point of repentance. There's some who preach a gospel that does not include repentance. That makes me nervous. Because we don't want that easy, free gospel, as it were. But there are those who also say, you know, repentance is not really a big part of the Christian life. It ought to be. Repentance isn't like a one-time event. Yes, it is for salvation, as it were. But as believers, we can also find ourselves in trouble, can't we? And the Lord give us that soft, repentant spirit so that we would come back to the Lord. And the third part of the book, of course, shows how the Lord does deliver them, as we read beautifully together, their enemies. And it, it even seems that what he does in the end is better than what they had had to begin with. God's good at that, isn't he? Do you think the life that we have in Christ and will have in eternity is better than what Adam, Adam had in the garden before he sinned? Yes. He's rest- he will, as the Christian says, he restored that which he took not away. But that beautiful principle that he gives us more in Christ than we ever could have had. In fact, remember those verses I was quoting to you a few minutes ago from Isaiah 14? When Satan says, I will ascend into heaven, I will be like the Most High. Isn't it ironic? But those are the things that the Lord's going to give you and me. I will ascend to heaven. I will be like the Most High. I won't be the Most High, but it says I'll be in His likeness. And is it so I shall be like thy son? Is this the work which He for me has done, Father of glory, thought beyond all thought in glory to thine own blessed likeness brought? Have you ever sung that hymn? One of my favorites. Is it so? It is. My Bible tells me that he's making me into the image of Christ. It's remarkable. Retaining my own individuality, my personality, but becoming more like Christ. I often say this to the young people. Don't despise the personality that God gave you. He made you that way. Uh, We've heard so much about the gospel uh, or the, the apostle John this week. Marvelous. Do you think John would have done what Peter did, what we read in Acts 2? Now, Peter was that bold, brash, and yes, it led to challenges for him, including, obviously, his denial of the Lord Jesus. But when he, when you take that brash Peter, that's sinful, and you make that crooked way straight, and you put the Spirit of God in him, and you mold him to the character of Christ, he's the one who could preach in the crowds and defy the authority. Remarkable. So don't don't despise the fact that you might be more uh, quiet or more bold or more shy. The, the Lord has built you with a personality and a character that he loves. The problem is all of our personality and characters are twisted a bit because of our sin. But someday that crooked ways we said will be made straight and the Lord will use that very person. And that's the beauty of the body of Christ is that we're all needed. Just like the cells of the body. You know, the ear doesn't say, hey, can you, Mr. Liver, take over for me today listening? I got to do something else. No, you've got a purpose and a plan in that uh, way. 
And so, as we see here, the prophetic implications, he spoke of the pending devastation of the nation, obviously in captivity, the, sp- the pouring out of his spirit in the day of Pentecost, and then the ultimate uh, uh, valley of Jehoshaphat. Well, before we close, what are the final lessons we want to learn from this book that really summarize much of the lessons we've learned over the last six books together? Number one, sin is the cause of their destruction. It wasn't just because there were strong nations around them. We read about those nations. It is a little bit ironic, don't you think? that those languages that were described in Acts 2 are from the countries that we read at the end of Joel? Remarkable, isn't it? Don't think God's just in the business of saving a small group of people. How marvelous that he even had salvation available to those others. The sinful state is an awful place sad to be. You get this. I mean, it's only three chapters, but you get this overwhelming sense of sadness. I mean, you saw, I didn't read it all to you. I didn't want to entirely depress you. But did you see some of those things? Oh, weep, you know, your, your vineyards are destroyed. Your, your cattle is gone. I mean, your pet cat was killed. Like everything is, is gone. It was, it was this sad state that they found themselves in, rending their clothes, rending their hearts. And sin does that. You know, the world can paint sin to look awfully attractive and lovely and pretty. But sometimes we need to see sin as God sees it. Awful and sad. Repentance was critical to their deliverance. We've seen examples this week, haven't we, of genuine repentance. We've seen examples of not so genuine repentance. Lord, just fix the problem, right? Just make everything right for us. Build our gardens again. Give us our cattle back. You need to rend more than your clothes. You need to rend your heart today. What is it that's holding you back from rending your heart? God exists in spirit and is needed to bring salvation. Now, salvation was not, as even we saw, Jehovah is the God. Salvation is of the Lord, we saw with Isaiah. Salvation wasn't, okay, dig down deep and find that inner peace. Right? You can do it. That's what the spirit of Antichrist would say. That's what the world is trying to tell itself today. If we just work hard enough, if we just think correctly, if we just do the right kind of therapy, we can find our own solution to every problem. Human, the human spirit will not be quenched. Look, I get part of that. I get the concept of resilience. I get the idea that the Lord has created us in his image. So we have a wonderful spirit within us in that sense. But you are not the solution to your own problem. And that comes with humility. And until the world is willing to humble itself and bow itself before the Lord, it will never have that salvation. And there are those who know it and never want it. And that's their prerogative. But God help us to always want to present that to them. Number five, God's restoration brings greater prosperity. We saw this already. Isn't it marvelous? Like, you know, when you say, oh, the, the house is kind of failing here. Let's, um, let's, let's restore the kitchen. But you know what happens, right? When you start talking to the contractor, your wife starts looking at the appliances. I mean, next thing you know, you've got this brand new, beautiful kitchen, right? That made your old kitchen look like it was a housekeeping unit, right? I mean, I mean, this thing, this thing's amazing now. And, and again, I don't want to liken restoration of your house to what the Lord does, but that's what God does. Naaman's skin was better after his leprosy than before it. That's how God works. That's how God does it. The emphasis of deliverance is on God's ability, not ours. It wasn't just saying, okay, Lord, you know what? You equip us and we'll fight off the enemy. Look at all those examples in the Old Testament, like Gideon and others, where it was impossible that 300 people could take on the whole enemy. 
I think last year, the young people, we talked about the, the my, David's mighty men. I love that. Shammah, the keeper of lentils, as I call him. You know, there he is standing in this hill of beans, these lentils, and, and, and he defended a whole army himself. That wasn't because he is the most skilled. A dino who killed 800 in one battle with a spear. Do you think that's because he had the biggest biceps in the, in the place? It wasn't just that. Yes, he was keen and he had trained, but his strength came of the Lord. So it's not just that we come to the Lord and say, Lord, empower me to fight the enemy. You're still no match for the enemy. But with his spirit, with he being the key ingredient of victory, victory can indeed be ours. And lastly, God's ultimate judgment of sin is severe and dramatic. It's kind of a daunting story, isn't it, to read the end of the end of uh, uh, the stories we read there of what will happen in the valley of Jehoshaphat, that very place where after the Lord read the acceptable year of our Lord, they wanted to throw him in. It's, it's the grace of God, as we said, that he didn't extinguish them all right there and finish the story as he could have. So it would have been his divine prerogative. And that judgment will come. And, and, and I look at that judgment with a bit of sobriety, not just, OK, great, we win the battle. It's all good. Kill them all. no. Let's rescue as many as we can before that day comes. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for the opportunity to spend time in this precious book. Oh, we've but skimmed the surface of these seven books. But Father, help us to learn it better, understand it more. And more than anything else, help it lead us to love our Savior that much more. Encourage us, we pray. Uh, Bless Ken as he comes to speak to us in a few moments. And uh, bless uh, all of us as we travel. So many have a long distance to go today. Be with us and give us that warmth in our hearts. It's good to have been here to share the Lord with God's people. In his precious name we pray. Amen.